Welcome back to the third and final installment in my RCR Stories trilogy on the history of the Corvette. Links to the previous two videos are in the description, but I've tried as best I can to make each of these videos capable of standing independently so that you don't need to have seen the previous videos in order to understand what's going to be happening in this one. But obviously, it'll be a more complete experience if you've seen the previous two videos, so I recommend checking them out. Now on with the story. The march to a mid-engine Corvette has been long in the making. I'm talking a good 60 years or more. And it's always the same story. A mid-engine Corvette is planned, it almost happens, and then it gets cut off at the knees for any number of reasons, both controllable and unmanageable. Racing bans, bankruptcies, internal opposition, engineering logistics, and mechanical limitations. For as many times as the Corvette has almost been killed, only to be saved at the last moment, the inverse is true of the mid-engine variant. A dream nearly realized, but ultimately curtailed. I talked in previous videos about how Zora Arcus Duntov tried to get the open-wheel, single-seat, serve-one racer off the ground as something of a test run for a mid-engine Corvette in 1960, but the AMA racing ban prevented the serve-one from going any farther than it did. The Serve 2 didn't fare much better in terms of sparking a revolution towards mid-engine possibilities. If nothing else, it was a proof of concept rather than a prototype. But by 1968, Arcus Duntov was ready to try again with the Astro 2 XP880 concept. It was a mid-engine sports car that had the potential to influence the Corvette's third generation. He engineered the car while Bill Mitchell and Larry Shinoda came up with the design, and what we got was a gorgeous example of what could happen when the two men directed their efforts towards a singular goal. The 390 horsepower, 427 cubic inch V8 was mid-mounted, and unlike the Serve 1, was a two-seater. It had its co-debut at the 1968 New York Auto Show with the C3 Corvette and made the rounds on the car show circuit. But this time, cost was the issue, since the investment required to bring the Astro 2 into production offered no guarantee of a positive return. And if I had to theorize, I would also think that GM didn't want a new concept to steal thunder from the incoming C3. So again... Back to the drawing board. And okay, fine. Maybe those concepts didn't make sense for that time period. The boogeyman of production costs is one of the biggest enemies of automotive evolution, and it often loomed large. Yet the question remains, did we really need to wait, what, over 60 years to experience what a mid-engine Corvette could do? Well, yes and no. This is Corvette. The March to Mid-Engine The 70s opened up the ambition to get more adventurous with the Corvette, to push beyond the mechanical and technological limitations of the day in service of achieving something that could proudly redefine the brand and take Chevrolet to a new level of credibility among diehard auto enthusiasts and sports car fanatics. However, the Serve 1 and Serve 2 concepts were axed, 
followed quickly by the Astro 2 getting shot down. So I don't think anyone would have blamed Zora Arcus Duntov for giving up on hopes for a mid-engine Corvette. But Arcus Duntov felt he truly had something that could outperform any Corvette on the market with the XP882 concept, and he came to this realization despite running up against opposition in late 1969. You see, Chevy general manager John DeLorean didn't really get the XP882, and decided to put the kibosh on the project altogether that August. His plan was to divert resources towards increasing the profitability of the Corvette. So how would he do this? Well, he would cut down on production costs through the use of the Camaro chassis. And that was the plan anyway, until it came to light that Ford planned on buying Italian automaker De Tommaso in order to remarket the mid-engine Pantera as a Ford vehicle. In a way, it goes back to that letter Arcus Duntov wrote that saved the Corvette in its early years by noting how Ford had them dead to rights among the hot-rodding community, and they had to make the Corvette more of a performance car to keep pace. And it certainly helped his argument for a mid-engine Corvette when it became public knowledge that Mercedes-Benz was working on a mid-engine C111, while AMC had teamed with Italian automaker Bizzarini for their own mid-engine offering. Scott Teeters expands on the situation in his article for Automobile Magazine, titled, The 1970 XP882 Mid-Engine Corvette Prototype Was Meant to Be a World Beater. Quote, Duntov showed Bill Mitchell and Chevy's chief of engineering, Alex Maiar, his mothballed XP882. The decision was immediate. Get the car into the New York show. The XP882 was quickly painted silver and dressed as a show car. The interior was utilitarian because the XP882 never had a chance to get fitted with a proper interior. There wasn't time. The car magazines were all over the XP882, though, initiating a feeding frenzy of speculation that it would become the 1973 Corvette. Enthusiasts had been lusting for a smaller, lighter Corvette for years, and the XP882 looked like it could deliver. Compared to a 70 Corvette, the wheelbase was 2.5 inches shorter, the length was 8 inches shorter, the width was 5.8 inches wider, and at 2,595 pounds, it was almost 700 pounds lighter. Of course, it was a prototype and not a fully featured car. End quote. The prototype shown at the auto show had a patchwork powertrain that took a 400 cubic inch small block V8, an Oldsmobile Toronado Turbo 400 transmission, and a stock Corvette rear. The suspension was mostly just production parts. John DeLorean gave the go-ahead to make the car, but he wanted a big block four-speed variant. And sure, whatever, let's just roll with it, because hey, at least there was finally hope for some progress on a mid-engine Corvette. That is, until small-block V8 developer Ed Cole, who had since risen to the role of GM president, bought General Motors the license to develop the Wankel engine. Suddenly, he wanted Zora Arcus Duntov to drop everything he was doing and focus on making a version that would work with this supposed mid-engine Corvette. Duntov outsourced the job to his engine developer, Gib Hofstadter, with the directive to just make a fast car. 
Hofstadter came up with a solution in two short months. Teeters recounts, quote, The layout consisted of two separate Wankel engines, one on each side of a shaft that ran back to the bevels at the transmission output. Each engine was 90 degrees out of phase to smooth out the performance. A toothed and grooved cog belt ran the ignition, alternator, and fuel pump, while a V-belt controlled the air conditioning, power steering, and water pump. The combined size of the two engines was 585 cubic inches and was rated at 350 to 370 horsepower. Hofstadter said with some development, the setup could make as much as 480 horsepower. End quote. The proponents for a mid-engine Corvette were in dire need of a solution, since everything they tried came up short. For example, the unibody XP895 concept in 1972 had to be retooled with an all-aluminum model when it was found that the initial prototype weighed too much. This prompted Chevy to work with Reynolds Metals to meet their aluminum needs, which took 500 pounds off the weight of the prototype. However, the car couldn't go to production because the adhesive bonding techniques needed to build the aluminum unibody would have been too expensive. So the team pivoted. With Hofstadter cracking the nut of the Wankel engine conundrum, we ultimately ended up with the XP897 GT concept in 1973. Initially a show car meant to demonstrate the viability of a mid-engine Corvette for the 1975 model year, the two-rotor Corvette was the most promising concept yet. At least until Ed Cole lost interest in the Wankel engine. Okay, I'm over-exaggerating. Sure, Cole's interest in the Wankel engine waned over the years, but the simple truth was that the two-rotor just didn't perform all that well, nor did its four-rotor counterpart, which offered 420 horsepower and styling flourishes that included gullwing doors. Sounds cool, but... It wasn't logistically sound from a production standpoint. And there were other pressing issues at the time, like the Arab oil crisis. I know, we always talk about it, but it's important here. And there's the recession that went hand-in-hand hand with the embargo and the rising popularity of fuel-efficient imports. It just didn't make sense to put the four-rotor out there. But even then, Bill Mitchell loved the design so much that he decided to restyle it into the Aerovet in 1977, using the XP895 powertrain. And this got tongues wagging inside GM. By that point, some of the holdups that the higher-ups had about the four-rotor weren't as big of an issue anymore, as the company looked to what styles could represent the future of the Corvette brand in both performance and visual aesthetic. Could this Aerovet finally be the one to get the mid-engine layout to market? Well, things were certainly looking optimistic enough when the Aerovet was actually approved for development to release for the 1980 model year. But optimism doesn't pay the bills. In the intervening years, the Aerovet had lost its two biggest champions, as both Zora Arkis Duntov and Bill Mitchell were gone from GM, having retired from their respective positions and their successors were knee-deep in getting the C4 Corvette off the ground and needed to divert funds and resources to its development. 
It was a necessary evil to keep the Corvette alive at all since the design and production teams were already well behind schedule on getting a C4 to market, and the C3 was long in the tooth. I mean, it's not like Corvette sales were this huge anchor around the neck of Chevrolet anyway, but it was clear that it was time for a refresh, and one that made sense. So, farewell, mid-engine Aerovet. It was kind of sad, actually. Case in point, Chief Engineer Dave McClellan recounted in his book, Corvette from the Inside, that when Duntov retired, he made one last request. Quote, Dave, you must do the mid-engine Corvette. End quote. It was an urgent plea from a man who knew this was the way of the future, but in the years that followed, McClellan was fighting an uphill battle because the suits thought a mid-engine layout would make for a cramped ride that was an even bigger pain in the ass to service. There was also the fear that the design team would insist on using the Aerovet's gullwing door layout, which meant no target top and no convertible options, meaning diminished sales for consumers who wanted those specific options. So it just couldn't happen. Too much would have to change. And fear of change is the enemy of progress. With that said, the mid-80s saw GM take another crack at a mid-engine Corvette with a variant on the C4. The team would work on refining the Chevrolet Corvette Indy show car concept for this exact purpose. The car was the brainchild of designer Tom Peters, who dreamed of working at GM in his youth and who'd one day become director of exterior design himself. The car also received guidance from legendary studio director Jerry Palmer and support from executive Chuck Jordan. As Peters recalled in his Corvette Hall of Fame induction in 2019, working on a mid-engine Corvette was the realization of a dream dating back to his first encounter with a Stingray. Quote, I could feel the electricity in a studio led by Jerry Palmer. One of the first assignments he gave me was to work on a Corvette mid-engine concept using the Lotus Indy engine. When we were done, I looked at it and remembered the 1963 Stingray spaceship I saw as a kid way back when. And here I am in this exclusive, hallowed area working on this vehicle. End quote. The magnitude of the mid-engine's potential was not lost on Peter's. And there was something to his spaceship analogy. I mean, the shape of the Indy show car called to mind an experimental aircraft of some kind, the type you'd imagine a kid would draw to represent a UFO. Any leaner or sleeker, and it'd be a disc with wheels. For crying out loud, the damn thing was crafted from a combination of carbon fiber and Kevlar, with a monocoque shell underneath. It was made to move, to be as exciting as it was bizarre. It was an ideal representation of futurism and the notion that we could achieve the types of technological advancement that was promised through the science fiction of the mid-20th century and earlier, that it was no longer a dream. The future is here. The future is now. The Corvette Indy had all the potential in the world to be exactly what its name suggested, a true blue racer. 
After a hasty six-week assembly, the car was displayed at the 1986 North American International Auto Show in Detroit. It wasn't operational, but Lotus had developed a 2.6-liter twin-turbo V8 for use with the vehicle. The rumor at the time was that it was capable of 600 horsepower, a top speed of 180 miles per hour, and a 0-60 to 60 time clocking in at under 5 seconds. In a way, the response to the Corvette Indy called to mind the reaction to the C1 back at Motorama in 1953. People were excited, not just those in attendance at the auto show, but the executives in charge, who showed a rare enthusiasm at the possibility of a mid-engine Corvette. So two models were commissioned, one used to drum up publicity and another for actual testing and engineering. Naturally, Chevy didn't bother using the twin-turbo for the publicity version, which was a fiberglass model running on a 5.7-liter V8 from Lotus. The testing went well enough to impress GM executives. For their part, Chevrolet contributed four-wheel steering, four-wheel drive, anti-lock brakes, and electronic refinements like a view screen on the dash and CRT information display units. Granted, the car only sat one, with the engine being located behind that single seat, but it was progress towards the realization of a long-held goal. Yet, the Corvette Indy couldn't really go into production with a model that only sat one person. Not if you wanted to actually sell a lot of them. And so the concept changed as the C4 carried on in the background and the 80s led to a more forthright effort in 1990 to bring a mid-engine Corvette to light. Yet, as with all aspects of automotive development, it seems, what manifested was a struggle, not unlike those that had come before. Realistically, the Corvette Indy could never work as designed. The technology and performance were all there, but very little about it was commercial in a conventional sense. It didn't really look like a Corvette. You couldn't have any passengers. It would have likely cost a downright extortionate price to manufacture, much less to sell to consumers. It had all the hallmarks of an investment that would be difficult to recoup if released in its then-present form. So the Corvette Indy transformed into the Serve 3 concept, an attempt to take the Corvette Indy and make something GM could actually sell. In research, development, and testing, the Serve 3 actually accomplished what the AeroVet couldn't a level of practical functionality that encouraged GM executives. The Surf 3 offered fuel injection thanks to the computer-controlled systems implemented by engineer <sighs> Dick Ballsey, with styling cues taken from studio head Jerry Palmer, such as a shorter nose and redesigned rocker panels to fit side-mounted fuel cells. Like the Corvette Indy, Lotus was actively involved, building the car from the ground up. Four-wheel power steering, computer-controlled active suspension with titanium springs, ABS and traction control, and a 38-pound backbone chassis with four hydraulic mounts. Two turbo hydromatic 425 transmissions were used with parts from a 475, creating a six-speed automatic working in harmony with a mid-mounted 5.7-liter 32-valve, dual-overhead cam LT5 V8 
that used twin turbos and made some 650 horsepower and 655 pound-feet of torque, hitting a mind-bending top speed of 225 miles per hour and a 3.9 second 0 to 60 time. Once again, like the Corvette Indy, it was both a research vehicle and a show car, as this also made its way to the auto show in Detroit to encouraging responses. I mean, that's good, right? So, what went wrong, then? In part two of this Corvette trilogy, I made note of the declining sales of the Corvette in the 90s, with figures hovering in the low 20,000s. By GM standards... That just wasn't going to toast company bread. They would have had to charge somewhere in the neighborhood of $300,000 to see any sort of return. And although Chevy eventually moved forward with a Surf 4 prototype, the Surf 3 was the end of the line for mid-engine Corvette concepts, as the Surf 4 was more about keeping the Corvette alive in the first place rather than moving it to a mid-engine layout. To once again hark back to the previous video, I made note of Jim Perkins, the man who helped wrangle the funds to build a mule vehicle for the C5 Corvette, with the hopes of proving to GM executives who'd soured on the Corvette that it deserved to survive into a fifth generation. The Surf 4 was just such a test mule for the C5, running on a 5.7-liter LT1 V8 engine paired with a six-speed manual transmission. It helped get the C5 made when it truly seemed as though the bottom was falling out and all hope of a fifth generation was lost. And yet, it didn't really do anything to advance the cause of a mid-engine Corvette. Of course, there were elements that made vague suggestions towards a mid-engine Corvette in the design of the 1997 C5, as Don Sherman writes in his article for Haggerty, titled, The Mid-Engine Corvette is 60 Years in the Making. Quote, Although a mid-engine layout failed to make the cut for the 1997 C5 Corvette, engineers did detach the transmission from the engine, sliding it rearward nearly six feet to a location matching that in the original serve, in unit with and just ahead of the differential. Since the rear wheels were also shifted rearward, the wheelbase grew from 96.2 inches to 104.6 inches, and there was minimal change in weight distribution. What Chief Engineer Dave McClellan sought here was a significant increase in torsional stiffness, achieved by adding a central backbone frame member in the space previously occupied by the transmission. End quote. But all of this came after the departure of Dave McClellan following his 1992 retirement. He wasn't around for the C5, although you could argue his influence helped the Corvette last long enough to even see a fifth generation. But by this point, we were far removed from the relative purity of Harley Earl's design studio, where it was less about convincing people to just let you make a car and more about just making the damn car. A meritocracy of gears and logic, always moving forward, always trying to evolve, but recognizing that not everything is going to work the way you want it to. But then maybe that's all just rose-colored glasses. After all, the life of the Corvette has always involved mitigating expectations, for better or worse. It's a challenge, but someone has to answer it. 
Dave Hill took over as chief engineer, and he was a pragmatist who maintained the front-engine status quo, but sought technological advancement in other areas. Maybe he didn't plan on implementing a mid-engine Corvette, but that didn't mean he didn't still want to see the brand make strides forward. Or at least I can't find anything to suggest he hindered efforts beyond just keeping the same layout the Corvette always had for time and cost-based reasons. In fact, if anything, Hill would inadvertently become instrumental to the implementation of a mid-engine to the Corvette through a choice he made for his assistant in 1993. A man by the name of Taj Jukter. I looked it up in two places. That's how it's pronounced from what I can find. Apologies if that's not how you say it. But regardless, Taj Jukter was an engineer whose name would become synonymous with the mid-engine march ahead but more on him in a bit. As the Corvette entered the 21st century, Chevrolet continued to ride the success of the C5 while planning a tighter design for the C6. As with previous generations, the design mentality was to refine what was already there, rather than reinvent the wheel entirely. Computer-assisted gear shifting was required to keep the C6 from falling victim to the gas guzzler tax, as this technology let the driver shift from first to fourth at low RPMs. But it didn't dull the excitement among Corvette aficionados, as you got an LS2 engine making 400 horsepower and 400 pound-feet of torque, with either a six-speed manual or automatic transmission. The eventual LS3 would boost ratings to 430 horsepower and 424 torque. The C6 also offered new bodywork and updated independent double wishbone suspension with transverse fiberglass mono-leaf springs and an automatic transmission that offered fuel economy in the neighborhood of 15 city and 25 highway. The manual offered 16 MPG City and 26 Highway, along with the aforementioned computer-aided gear shifting. So hey, <laughs> one more mile per gallon per roadway. It's, it's called progress. That's what we, yeah, progress. Yay. For the most part, the car maintained the style and presence of the previous generation, offering an aura that suggested a far more exotic car than the Corvette actually was. And this was the goal, to become a name in performance, at least domestically, and stand shoulder to shoulder with import sports cars. To this end, like the C5 prior, the C6 received a high-performance C06 version, except this featured the largest small-block Chevy V8 engine ever made up to that point the 7-liter LS7 V8, making 505 horsepower and 470 pound-feet of torque. In addition to stiffer springs, shocks, and a lighter aluminum frame, it handled like a champ. The ZR1 that followed kicked things up a notch. GM tried to hide the car from prying eyes by testing it under camouflage and referring to it internally under the codename Project Blue Devil. But despite their best efforts, the project still leaked ahead of its announcement in December 2007, with the high-performance variant offering a 6.2-liter LS9 V8, making 638 horsepower and 604 pound-feet of torque with a Chevy-boasted top speed of 205 miles per hour. However, the noteworthy aspects of this phase are less about the car and more about the crisis that for the second time in 15 years, nearly got the Corvette killed. 
It was 2008, and the financial crisis saw automakers tightening their wallets. This led to the departure of Tom Wallace, who'd taken over as chief engineer in 2005 from the outgoing Dave Hill. Wallace wanted a mid-engine Corvette, but GM was in dire financial straits, and Vice Chairman Bob Lutz didn't think he could save the Corvette, so Wallace took early retirement. The financial crisis got worse, and GM declared bankruptcy in 2009. Yet this bankruptcy may have indirectly saved the mid-engine Corvette by, well, saving the Corvette. Our buddy Taj Jukter? This is where he enters our story proper. As assistant chief engineer, Jukter had continued working on the planned C7, putting a contingency into place by organizing a book of home phone numbers in the event that the Bowling Green GM plant and the Corvette itself were sold off or otherwise saved, in which case there'd be no trouble getting the old team back together. The situation was looking bleak. It really could have been the end for the Corvette. The only thing left was to break out the shovels and start digging, barring some sort of miracle. And if he could make that miracle happen, Jukter was going to try, if for no other reason than to save the jobs of his colleagues and the car they'd come to regard with such reverence. In a conference call with the U.S. Treasury Department Task Force, which was evaluating GM's business operations, Jukter would argue in favor of keeping the Corvette alive. Jukter recalls, in an interview with Car and Driver for their 2018 article titled How the Chevrolet Corvette Was Saved from Extinction Twice, quote, We went around the room introducing ourselves, and when I introduced myself as Corvette Chief Engineer, one consultant said, What can you tell me about C7? The same question we were getting from our customers. I thought, wow, this guy knows the lingo and wants to know about C7. He may get it. They got into our books and saw that Corvette made money, so getting going on a new one was on the to-do list coming out of bankruptcy. It was spared as an extremely valuable brand that is known globally, and the Bowling Green assembly plant was also spared. End quote. Now, the article continues Jukter's account with input from Jukter directly. Quote, Yet still, as GM was emerging from its government-guided bankruptcy, nothing was happening on C7. Then Jukter saw Fritz Henderson, who had succeeded Rick Wagoner as GM CEO, on the Autoline Detroit TV program. People were phoning in questions, Jukter recalls, and one asked, When are we going to get a new Corvette? Fritz said, We're working on one right now. We're doing an evolutionary but major change off the C6, which was wrong. He was either misinformed or wishfully thinking. The next day, a friend of Henderson's who decided to buy a Corvette emailed him some questions. Henderson passed them along to Jukter for answers, which gave Jukter the opportunity to say that he had seen Henderson on Autoline Detroit and they were definitely not yet working on a new Corvette. Henderson responded, Well, we'll see about that. End quote. Somehow, the Corvette managed to see another day. Truly the automotive equivalent of a cat. Not for the nine lives analogy, but because the brand always, miraculously, managed to land on its feet. And yet, in spite of this, 
The C7 Corvette wasn't officially announced until late 2012, and it didn't debut until January 2013 as a car for the 2014 model year. So like the C4, there was a wait for the new model that carried on longer than anyone cared to endure. But there were higher hopes with this model since it was being conceived with a mid-engine layout. Or rather, it would have been, except for development costs rearing their ugly head once again. We were barely five years removed from the big automotive bailout, and it was more important than ever to be fiscally responsible and far more measured with any potential risks in the design department. In short, while it sounded like a good idea for a mid-engine Corvette, it just wasn't the right time for it, especially in a period where it seemed enthusiast cars were growing less popular as the years wore on. Ultimately, GM opted to keep the front-engine rear-wheel drive layout for the C7, utilizing a 6.2-liter small-block V8, making 455 horsepower and 460 torque. The car was matched to a 7-speed manual transmission, although a 6-speed automatic was also offered. This was, of course, before the manual Armageddon for the Corvette, which was a design choice that continues to rankle plenty of fans in the automotive community today. But sometimes the engineering and design processes are about appealing to the widest possible demographic rather than a sadly shrinking niche in North America. On the subject of design... For all the talk of the many fathers of the Corvette, I would be remiss if I overlooked the woman who helped shape the appearance of the C7 Stingray. It's a short detour, but one that feels necessary, as it brings us full circle from the damsels of design employed by Harley Earl in the age of the C1's creation. It's also significant considering the C7 marks a point at which the Corvette reclaimed aspects of its former heritage, in the sense that it was the first to bear the Stingray name since 1968. Helen Emsley was chosen to design the interior for this watershed Corvette, owing to her nearly 20 years of experience in the design department of GM, beginning at Opel before moving on to Holden and finally arriving in Detroit near the turn of the century. According to Emsley herself, she found her promotion to the position surprising, not so much because she was a woman, but because she was British. And as Emsley herself said, quote, I have no history with an American icon, end quote. Of course, that didn't really stop Zora Arkis Duntov when he first came to the U.S., or any of a number of foreign engineers who've had a proud hand in American automotive design. But under Emsley, the interior took on an approach meant to engage both driver and passenger utilizing carbon fiber, leather, and hand-stitching as a slick, technological sheen was applied to everything from the dashboard to the smaller steering wheel intended for more exact steering adjustments, and all this situated within something akin to a jet fighter cockpit, with select passenger controls moved just north of the glove box in an approach that worked from cues provided by workers at the Bowling Green facility, as Emsley and her team traveled to Kentucky to ask the workers what they thought the new Corvette interior needed. This, in addition to focus groups from both Corvette owners and owners of rival sports cars. Emsley's approach was an open one. All ideas were invited, all opinions welcomed. Hell, she even created a new shade of red for the Stingray called Adrenaline Red, 
which is a fitting name for a car that could go from 0 to 60 in 3.8 seconds. A car that will always bear Emsley's personal touch. Now, upon its debut for the 2014 model, over 37,000 C7 Stingray units were produced across its coupe and convertible options. With the implementation of Grand Sport, ZR1, and Z06 models, production would climb to a generation high of 40,689 in 2016. Granted, the C7 would face a major hiccup in 2018, plummeting to just 9,686 units, the lowest since 1959. But there was a good reason. The Bowling Green plant had been shut down for roughly three months, so production for that model year only began on June 5, 2017, and ended on January 28, 2018, so it was a much shorter production cycle than normal. But regardless of the reasons, the C7 was a success for Chevrolet and GM at large, as the dream was just around the corner. In an appeal to a younger generation of auto enthusiasts, GM finally gave Chevy the go-ahead. It almost seemed too good to be true. A mid-engine Corvette for the 8th generation? Just like that? After all this? Like we're just doing this now? Well, yeah, actually. <laughs> On July 18th, 2019, the C8 Corvette was finally announced. After all the serve prototypes, after the test mule for the C5, after the rerouted plans for the C7, it was here, at last. Chevy offered a mid-engine Corvette, its first mid-engine sports car since they killed the Fiero in 1988. The base-level C8 Corvette sports the 6.2-liter LT2 V8 and 490 horsepower and 465 pound-feet of torque, and with the performance exhaust, you get 495 horsepower and 470 pound-feet. I mean, it's just, it's something that has been a long time coming. This, in addition to 8-speed dual-clutch transmission, a 0-60 time of less than 3 seconds, a literal jet fighter-inspired interior, just like Helen Emsley's design, and suspension lift enabled by the onboard GPS, which can store up to 1,000 locations where the lift will be engaged automatically. And all this for a price tag that was just under 60000 By, like, $5, but still, whatever. The world was ready to experience the mid-engine Corvette at long last. Except there would be one final hurdle. Ugh. Okay, so it wouldn't be that easy. It couldn't be that easy. There had to be more to the story. And there was. Last year, Travis Okulski sat down with Chief Engineer Taj Jukter, as well as Design Manager Kirk Bennion and Product Marketing Manager Harlan Charles, for a Road & Track article titled, The Story Behind the C8 Corvette. In the interview, Jukter explains the difficult process that finally led to the C8 crossing that 70-year finish line. Quote, we sold it before bankruptcy to Bob Lutz. At that time, the attitude was, no, we have a great formula. It's working great. 
Why would we mess with it? But there were always technical reasons to do it. We also had demographic reasons, honestly. We did a clinic where we took the same generic design language, not a Corvette, and put it over front and mid-engine cars. We found our current customers are happy either way, but people that we'd like to get, they'd rather have a mid-engine. Given that our customer base was getting older every year, we had additional support that it was a good idea. End quote. When asked how they reacted to the car's approval from the higher-ups, Harlan Charles recalled expressing concern over whether he'd even be allowed to talk about it until the realization set in by April 2019 that, in essence, it was too late for GM to back out. So this was happening. Yet, even after the announcement, they still didn't feel like they could talk about it in anything other than hushed whispers. And I get it. When you finally get a car like a mid-engine Corvette approved, something with this much anticipation, there's almost the expectation, if not the anticipation, that things will go wrong. If nothing else, the men seemed prepared for backlash. Jukter recalled criticism about why they couldn't also keep the old front-engine option on the market rather than gambling it all on a mid-engine layout. But Jukter noted, quote, after we got this nailed as to what it looks like, what the specs are going to be, what the reality of it was, you park them side by side, you can't sell the old car, end quote. Kirk Bennion added to the comparison between the front-engine and mid-engine cars, stating, quote, it looks a ton older. This car looks way more expensive. Exotic. End quote. Naturally, the men addressed concerns about the uproar over the lack of a manual transmission. But Jukter's defense was that the design team tried, but it made for too tight of a squeeze considering the pedal box and how close it would be to the wheel. The pedals would have to be far too close to make any kind of sense from a design standpoint. Much less safety concerns, you know what I mean? Yet Jukter expressed enthusiasm over the hype that surrounded the mid-engine Corvette, stating that kids who weren't even old enough to drive had already grasped onto the notion of a mid-engine Corvette as a, quote, aspirational unicorn. Harlan Charles concluded by stating, quote, This car, I think, is the opportunity for this younger generation. This is going to be their Corvette. That's the one that the first time they see it, it's so exciting. It's such a big change. End quote. And now that's only a fraction of the whole story of that interview and article. So definitely check it out. It's just a really well done article and interview that asks really incisive questions. So definitely check it out. So yeah, we finally have a Corvette that's marched across the 70-year finish line, provided you're rounding up. A true mid-engine Corvette. But could it march across a picket line? Let's back up. With Corvette enthusiasts and non-believers alike, the C8 was about as anticipated as any car release of the past decade. Yet its release ran into a bit of a snag and it's completely understandable why it happened. As efforts were being mobilized to get the C8 into production, the United Auto Workers Union organized its largest strike since 1970, which was covered in a previous installment in this series. 
sort of a full circle final boss. Yet this final boss was a bit more sympathetic than the Kefkas and Ganondorfs and Frank Fontaines and Liquid Ocelots of the world. Back on November 26, 2018, GM announced plans to restructure the company. These plans threatened to shutter five plants across North America, with a potential loss of nearly 15,000 jobs. GM Chief Executive Mary Barra claimed the restructuring was due to excess manufacturing capacity. But three months later, on February 26, 2019, the United Auto Workers Union formally sued GM over this plan, citing a 2015 collective bargaining agreement the company was violating. Enter Norwood Jewel, the former labor relations liaison between the United Auto Workers Union and Fiat Chrysler. In March 2019, Jewel pleaded guilty to misappropriation of funds using union resources to pay for parties and other extravagances. As the case played out, GM considered selling the Lordstown, Ohio plant to Workhorse Group Incorporated, an electric vehicle startup. Unwilling to allow GM to offload responsibility, the union demanded that GM place one of its new products in the plant to give some measure of assurance. But the company had no intention of doing that. So Gary Jones, president of the United Auto Workers Union, entered negotiations in July by demanding that the plants threatened for closure remain open. These negotiations began, interestingly enough, just two days prior to the official unveiling of the C-8. On July 16, 2019, GM and the United Auto Workers Union opened a formal contract negotiation for a new four-year collective bargaining deal. But there seemed to be some lingering resentment from previous protracted legal battles. And the whole business with Norwood Jewel left the whole upper brass of the United Auto Workers Union seeming pretty shady, I guess, in the court of public opinion. And... Things wouldn't really get better on this end because the feds got involved since Jones had a bit of a sketchy history himself. Basically, in late August, the FBI conducted a search of the Jones residence on suspicion of embezzlement and racketeering. This culminated in the arrest of a senior union official as part of a far-reaching corruption probe that allegedly named Jones and would eventually implicate Jones's vice president on charges of bribery and kickbacks. With talks falling apart, the workers made the decision to go on strike on September 16, 2019, a decision which halted production in 31 GM factories and 21 other facilities across the United States. Now, GM could have tried to reopen negotiations with Jones's successor, or at least reach some sort of temporary compromise to keep the union working in lieu of an outright strike. But nah, General Motors was swift and decisive with a move meant to strike directly at the heart of what just about any worker values most about their job besides their pay. GM cut health insurance for the striking workers which had the effect of moving roughly 49,000 union members to the more expensive COBRA insurance provided through the union. The backlash was instantaneous, as some workers were uncertain if they would have any health coverage at all. You could imagine the terror for any worker with a pre-existing condition, or even the concern of having to pay for a more expensive insurance option at a time when they weren't making any money. 
And while you could make the argument that this is the risk you take when you go on strike, these are people who wanted to be compensated fairly for their work. It never seemed to me like an arbitrary strike. These were people standing for what they felt they deserved for the work they put in. And sometimes you have to gamble on yourself, you know? And look, regardless of who was on the right side of this struggle, I get the sense that the UAW knew the kind of backlash GM would get for pulling this move. Sure, the federal case against Jones and Jewell made the United Auto Workers Union top brass seem pretty bad. But also, in the court of public opinion, it wouldn't take much to turn the UAW into underdogs in this story, presuming they weren't already. The outcry had the potential to turn into a firestorm of negative publicity for GM, a company that couldn't really afford to take it from both ends in the media. So GM North America's vice president of labor relations personally wrote a letter to acting UAW vice president Terry Didis claiming, quote, GM is very concerned about the significant confusion caused around our employees' health care coverage. Throughout this negotiation, GM has said that our number one focus was on the well-being of our employees. That remains the case today. End quote. GM promptly resumed benefits for its employees, despite the ongoing strike. In addition, union members began receiving strike pay, a sum between $250 to $275 per week, as September segued into October. But as October rushed by and November neared, the desperation was beginning to set in on both sides to have this strike over and done. The UAW members wanted to get back to work. They just wanted fairer conditions. And GM wanted their workers back at work, but they struggled to come to any sort of deal that would make financial sense for them, at least in their minds. That is, until October 25th, when the two sides were able to reach a compromise. As author Jamie L. LaRue explains for the Detroit Free Press, quote, the union said the new contract will automatically make more than 900 temporary workers regular employees in January. After that, temps would get permanent jobs as they accrue time on the job under terms of the new contract. Their benefits improve, and the union has a voice in how many temporary workers the company can add. Likewise, all in-progression workers would get a raise within 52 weeks of their last raise. Under the old contract, those hired after 2007, dubbed in-progression workers, start at $17 an hour and can move up to $28 an hour after eight years. This new deal provides for them to reach $32.32 an hour by the time the new contract expires in 2023. End quote. Nearly concurrent with the end of the strike in October, the C8 convertible was unveiled along with a racing variant known as the C8R. After a longer-than-average wait, production on the C8 Corvette finally resumed on February 3rd, 2020. And the response since its release has been more or less what you'd expect from a car as hyped as this one. The mid-engine layout improved such aspects as handling, response time, and visibility. 
The rear weight distribution sent more power to the rear wheels, which, when coupled with its more aerodynamic proportions, made the C8 Corvette a car to be reckoned with. And despite a big-time slump in sales across the auto industry in 2020, the C8 assured that the Corvette remained the best-selling model in its class, taking 43% of the market share in quarter 1, 2020. Its closest competition was the Porsche 911, which took some 29% of the market share. Granted, many in its class had a higher price point than the $59,995 base price of the new C8, but it's still a remarkable achievement to create a car that feels European without actually paying an insane premium. Of course, I say that while acknowledging it's not a car I'll be able to afford anytime soon, if ever. And even then, I like more modest cars than this anyway. But the C8 Corvette is among the few cars I've ever driven where I understood the hype because the car ultimately lived up to it in the most complete way possible. At least for me. Of course, for more on everything from specs to driving performance, check out our review of the C8 Corvette, as that's essentially an appendage to this trilogy. But needless to say, this was the culmination of a seemingly interminable journey. The march to mid-engine had finally reached its terminus. The grand triumph of persistence in engineering, in marketing, in meeting a demand, albeit a very particular one. But this is still not the end of the story. <laughs> not entirely. The C8 Corvette had one unfortunate growing pain to endure. Before the last word, we have to address the first recall. In finally realizing the dream of a mid-engine Corvette, the C8 was declared North American Car of the Year, the Detroit Free Press Car of the Year, the Motor Trend Car of the Year, and it earned a feature on Car and Driver's 10 Best for 2020. In some cases, the positive press surrounding the car has mostly drowned out some of the criticisms people have had about it. I doubt any automaker expects their vehicles to ever be recalled, but they accept that in some cases, cars within their fleet will inevitably be hit by the big bad capital R. So here's hoping that whatever the car is recalled for, it's not something that could kill someone, right? Yet for the C8 Corvette's first recall, we have something fairly bizarre. People are getting locked in the front? Well, not exactly. But they could technically be locked in the front. As it turns out, Chevrolet has failed Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard 401, which is the official name for the requirement for all vehicles to have an interior trunk release in the event someone gets locked inside. Now, the issue here isn't that the frunk is inherently a trap any more than a standard trunk would be. It deals with the release button itself and its spotty functionality after the car has been powered down for more than 10 minutes. Here's the recall release directly from Chevrolet, released on August 6, 2020. Quote, These vehicles are designed to enter a low-power sleep mode 10 minutes after powering off. The trunk lid release button located inside the front trunk compartment may not function while the vehicle is in this sleep mode, as required by FMVSS 401. 
Safety Risk Description If the trunk lid is left open, a small person who climbs inside the front trunk compartment and closes the trunk lid while inside may not be able to get out without assistance, increasing the risk of injury. Repair Description GM will update the software in the vehicle's body control module to lower the voltage required to wake the vehicle from the low power sleep mode. This will allow the interior trunk release button to function while the vehicle is in that mode. Owners who have accepted applicable terms and conditions will have the opportunity to accept these software changes using wireless over-the-air technology without having to bring their vehicle to a dealership. Alternatively, owners may schedule to have the updates performed at a GM dealer. End quote. Okay, first of all, what kind of person gets in a frunk in the first place? Oh, oh wait, no. Okay, never mind. Turns out this was a totally solvable problem, but not the only one, according to some owners. You see, a pair of C8 owners issued a complaint to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, stating that the front trunk lid occasionally flew open at speed. GM responded by issuing a statement to thedrive.com, stating, quote, After isolated reports of 2020 Chevrolet Corvette hoods being inadvertently left open while being driven, the engineering team is investigating the potential issue and will be working to prevent them moving forward. We have not been able to identify any mechanical issues related to this situation. We're looking at ways we can improve warnings of the hood being open by increasing the volume of warning chimes and changing the messaging that appears in the DIC. Vehicles already in the field would receive these changes through over-the-air updates, end quote. So GM is basically saying, you know, we didn't do anything wrong. You guys just need to secure your hoods. It was essentially putting the blame back on the consumer, but who knows where the blame belongs? In the grand scheme of things, it's part of a story stitched into the quilted expanse of the American auto industry. Like software that's patched later, or movies that get director's cuts, it seems nothing is ever truly finished. Nothing is ever truly complete. It's why you see so much variation between models of a given generation, with gradual style and mechanical changes from year to year. Harley Earl and Alfred P. Sloan's dynamic obsolescence in action. It can never be complete. It can only reach a level of acceptable operation. That is, until the next model comes along and the previous model is rendered obsolete. And really, cars should be held to a higher standard than something like a director's cut or a rushed video game, considering the inherent danger cars can present. But I also understand that it's unrealistic to think no car will ever have any issues that any car will ever be perfect, no matter how long we've been waiting for it. If nothing else, this all feels like part of the life cycle of the Corvette. Some have had mechanical issues with these cars, while others have just hated them from a mechanical style or performance perspective. Every Corvette in history has had its highs and lows, and there will always be people who adore Corvettes, People who hate them, people who are defined by them, and people who couldn't possibly care any less, and all sorts of people in between. But that's baked into the recipe of automotive enthusiasm. 
No car is universally praised. No single car universally loved. But each car has its own story. Its own unique history. Maybe a day will come when the Corvette is finally put out to pasture, and the nameplate falls by the wayside as a forgotten brand from a bygone era. But for now, the Corvette persists, even thrives, as a car of shifting identities. Whatever it needs to be. Whatever it needs to replace. Until the day comes when something else fills that function. But until that day comes... We have the Corvette. And cheers to that. Thanks for watching, everyone.